0: Hello, everyone. This is Volts for March 24th, 2023. Why electrifying industrial heat is such a big deal. I'm your host, David Roberts. Electricity gets the bulk of the attention in clean energy discourse. This newsletter is, after all, called Volts. But half of global final energy consumption comes in the form not of electricity, But of heat, when it comes to reaching net zero emissions, heat is half the problem. Roughly half of heat is used for space and water heating, which I have covered on other pods. The other half, a quarter of all energy humans use, is found in high temperature industrial processes, everything from manufacturing dog food to making steel or cement. The vast bulk of industrial heat today is provided by fossil fuels, usually natural gas or specialized forms of coal. Conventional wisdom has had it that these sectors are difficult to decarbonize because alternatives are either more expensive or nowhere to be found. Indeed, when I covered an exhaustive report on industrial heat back in 2019, The conclusion was that the cheapest decarbonization option was probably CCS, capturing carbon post-combustion and burying it. A lot has changed in the last few years. Most notably, renewable energy has gotten extremely cheap, which makes it an attractive source of heat. However, it is variable, while industrial processes cannot afford to start and stop. Enter the thermal battery a way to store clean electricity as heat until it is needed. A new class of battery, Rocks in a Box, stores renewable energy as heat in a variety of different materials, from sand to graphite, delivering a steady supply to various end uses. One of the more promising companies in this area is Rondo, which makes a battery that stores heat in bricks. I talked with Rondo CEO John O'Donnell about the importance of heat in the clean energy discussion, the technological changes that have made thermal storage viable, and the enormous future opportunities for clean heat and a renewables-based grid to grow together. All right, uh, John O'Donnell of Rondo, welcome to Volts. Thank you for coming. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. I am so excited to talk to you. <laughs> I've been geeking out about thermal storage for over a year now, just wanting to do something on it. And there's so much there. And I find that, you know, unlike a lot of electricity topics, which I cover, there's just not a lot of baseline familiarity out there among Let's say uh normal people. So there's a ton to cover from the ground up. So I want to start at the highest possible level, which is to say, let's just talk about heat. Like in the clean energy world, electrical power gets a lot of attention, a lot of discussion, a lot of technological development. Everybody's got their favorites, everybody knows what's going on. But then there's also heat, which uh, you know, is the sort of weirdly ignored, not so much anymore, but, you know, up till pretty recently ignored. So maybe just start with an explanation of why heat is important. If you care about clean
1: energy, why you should care about heat? Thank you. Sure. Uh, It's a great question. And that context you just provided is, of course, dead on. There's a really simple answer. Heat, industrial heat, is 26% of total world final energy consumption. Whether you are making... Baby food or fuel or cement or steel, the manufacturing processes vastly predominantly use energy in the form of heat, not electricity. Globally, it's three quarters of all the energy used by industry is in the form of heat. Again, whether you're pasteurizing milk or melting steel. And, you know, the DOE has just created a new office focused on this topic. We're thrilled about it. Their assessment is that industrial heat is 11%, I think, of all total U.S. CO2. I'm in California. Here in California, we burn more natural gas for industrial process heat than we do for electric power generation. Mm -hmm. And to a first approximation, as you just mentioned, no one knows that. (laughs) Right. Right.
0: So heat is a huge portion of final energy consumption. It's a huge portion of global CO2 emissions. So maybe give a sense of like what percentage of total heat final consumption is industry? Like how's the total heat pie divided up?
1: So when I said 26% of world, that's industrial heat, right? So that's not buildings. That's not other heating sources. Right. Heat's a bigger category than that. I mean, if you take actually... Heat for buildings and heat for industry, together, they're like 60% of all the natural gas used in Europe. Oh, wow. But it, within industrial heat, people sort it out by a couple of different things. One of them is the temperature. You know, there's a lot of heat in cooking processes that's around 150 C, you know, it's in the form of steam, all the way up to the highest temperature heat in making cement that's around 1800 C. Hmm. About 95% of total heat is used in processes that need it below 1500 C. About maybe half to two-thirds of industrial heat is below about 400 C. There's a fairly steep curve. About half of all industrial heat, something like that, is delivered as steam. Right. Steam
0: is the lower end of the temperature spectrum. Like most, I, I recall looking at these charts of sort of what industries use what levels of heat. Yeah. You know, up at the super high heat, you have pretty singular <laughs> industries like steels up there and and concrete's up there. But down in the lower heat registers where you're using just steam, there's a bunch of like little industries clustered up there. Most of the industries
1: are, are using that. That's right. All of these have been things that people say are hard to decarbonize because across many of these industries, they're making commodities, whether it's steel or tomato paste, that are relatively low margin Mm. and for which the cost of heat is a very significant portion of the total cost of production. So this is a sector where all these processes use heat in somewhat different ways, the cost of that energy is really critical to the competitiveness of that industry and what commodities cost consumers. And there have not been great solutions until recently that could provide decarbonized heat at the same or lower cost.
0: So the situation is there's a huge chunk of our energy that goes toward heat. A huge chunk of that goes toward industrial heat. And there's been, a uh, comparatively little work on finding uh, zero carbon versions of that heat. That's the problem. Like, And we discussed the last time we talked, probably three or four, five years ago, everything pre-pandemic is a haze, but I think it was around five (laughs) years ago, I covered this big comprehensive report on industrial heat options. Like what can we do about industrial heat? And it went through the options and basically the conclusion was that continuing to do it with fossil fuels and just capturing the emissions post-combustion was the cheapest option for a lot of these heat uses. And I, you know, I dutifully reported that, but I didn't like it. (laughs) I don't, you know, I didn't like the idea that that's the best we can do is create these Rube Goldberg machines where we're, you know, digging up carbon, burning it, capturing carbon, burying the carbon again, et cetera. I was like, surely that's not the best we can do, but things have changed a lot (laughs) since then. So maybe just run through what are the low carbon heat alternatives and which ones have emerged recently and what has changed
1: that has helped them emerge? Yeah, thank you. You said for a long time there hasn't been much work on this. I would say partly there hasn't been so much success on it. It's a problem <laughs> I, I've been working on for 15 years. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> in, John. And in two previous solar companies, we wound who are a lot of the team here at Rondo worked with me there. We wound up delivering more than half of all the solar industrial heat that's running worldwide right now, but. To say that's a drop in the bucket is oversizing a drop. (laughs) Uh, You asked exactly the right question, That like what are the options? Because the world has really changed. There has always been the option of burning biomass, which is more or less sustainable, but very high cost, high air pollution, and very, very limited availability. Other kinds of biofuels like renewable natural gas – you know, if we take it to a giant scale, it might power as much as 1% of our <laughs> industrial heat. Uh, and, you know, thats it's easy to laugh about, but it's true. The thing that has profoundly changed is what the wind and solar PV industries have accomplished over the last 15 years. The 95% reduction in cost means that intermittent electricity is becoming, has become the cheapest form of energy that humans have ever known. And it's now cheaper than burning stuff as a source of heat, but it's intermittent. So mm-hmm. how do we take that intermittent electricity and use it to deliver the continuous heat? I mean, you you turn on a, a smelter or a factory or even a you know a tomato paste plant. You run it for months or a year on end. It has to have continuous heat or the it will be damaged.
0: It's worth just pausing to emphasize this. The vast majority of industrial processes are continuous. They cannot run intermittently. They cannot stop and start with the sun and the wind. It just would be wildly
1: uneconomic. That's a beautiful and concise way of saying it. Like there are processes where if they get a half second interruption in their energy supply, it takes a week to restart the process. (laughs) So reliability is a very big deal. So what are the tools we have for that intermittent electricity, which is becoming plentiful? And, you know, in places right now, you can have essentially unlimited amounts Briefly, every day at prices <laughs> far below fuel prices, we have hydrogen, electrolytic hydrogen, uh, make hydrogen, compress it, store it, and then combust it. That works, although electrolyzers are today expensive, they're coming down in cost, but the laws of physics bite you in that it's a, you get about one unit of heat for every two units of electricity because of the chemical steps involved. Right, all the conversions. Yes. But can
0: you just dump hydrogen into existing boilers and kilns? Like, is existing equipment hydrogen-ready, as they say?
1: Uh, Not exactly. It's hydrogen-ready for a few percentage of hydrogen. But when you look at a boiler, 95% of its lifetime cost is the fuel, not the boiler. So upgrading boilers to run that other fuel that's something that you would do if the economics of that fuel were sensible. Got it. Right? Now, at taxpayer expense, we're creating a period where hydrogen, electrolytic hydrogen, is going to get down to the same cost as fossil fuel in the U.S. with tax credits. But again, intermittent electricity by itself today is cheaper than fossil fuel. It doesn't need tax credits to get it to that point. And now there is this emerging class of electric thermal energy storage systems that don't do chemistry. They just convert electricity to heat directly and then store the heat. Because heat storage, another thing you could do, I skipped over, is you could, of course, store electricity in a battery. Right. uh, Which would be the most expensive thing. But, you know, if you have a coffee thermos on your desk, it's storing energy as it happens. Right. The energy stored in your coffee thermos is more energy than the energy stored in your laptop battery. Huh. And it's a bit cheaper than your laptop battery. <laughs> Storing heat is, is cheap right now in the thermos. What do you have? You have hot water, which stores a lot of energy per degree, and an insulation thing around it, depending on how good the insulation is, that'll tell you how long that thing will store energy. All those things have been around for a long time. And suddenly, okay, how are we going to heat these things electrically? How are we going to use simple technology? Because most people who are working on electric thermal storage are doing simple things. There are some exotic things using conductive materials, liquid metal things, but there are simple things that people are doing also.
0: You're hitting directly on something that is why I love this area so much, why it sort of kind of caught my imagination so much. Like you really have a situation here where electricity was just more expensive than fossil fuels for these purposes up until like five minutes ago. So <laughs> exactly. in terms of looking for opportunities for just storing, you know, now that electricity is cheap, we're looking for ways to store it and use it as heat in a lot of ways for the first time. And what that means is there's, like, very simple, low-hanging fruit all over the place. Like, you know, because the way I think about it is, like, my generation maybe, like, younger people than me, when we think of technology or advanced technology, we generally think digital. And that generally means opaque. Like, we don't know what's going on in there. Even cars these days, like, So little of it is mechanical anymore, and so much of it is digital and computerized. It just seems opaque to us. And these technologies of storing electricity as heat are so delightfully simple. Like you're literally just heating up a rock, (laughs) you know? And that's like – you might say that heating up a rock – is literally the oldest energy transfer (laughs) mechanism that humans have available to them. It's probably the very first, you know, way we moved energy ever, literally. So it's just fun to me in that it's it's almost like like a childlike sense
1: of discovery to it. Anyway, that's just my, (laughs) that's completely off topic. But one of the electric thermal energy storage technologies actually uses rock and on the outside of the pilot, it says, Welcome to the new stone age. And there's a mast, <laughs> there's a mastodon as the, as the mascot. So, yes, it's it's a well understood thing. Yeah.
0: So just to sort of summarize where we've been so far, you got you need all this heat. Up until very recently, it was overwhelmingly cheaper to do it by combusting fossil fuels. A lot of the alternatives to fossil fuels are more expensive than fossil fuels, but now. Recently, along comes renewable wind and solar electricity, which are cheaper than anything. So now the challenge is, well, how do you get the heat from the wind and solar electricity? As you say, the applications are running around the clock. Wind and solar come and go. So in between the wind and solar and the applications, you need something that's going to store that wind and solar that can release it in a steady flow. Exactly. So that's the new thermal storage technologies that are emerging now are sitting right in that space, including Rondo. So if you're talking about something sitting in that space, what do you need out of it? Like, what are the sort of metrics by which you judge the performance of that thing that's sitting in between the renewables and the application?
1: Great question. So obviously you need safety, efficiency, cost temperature at which the heat can be delivered. Right. But uh, some other things as well. <laughs> One of them is the faster that you can charge the system and deliver energy continuously. If you can charge it, you know, if it takes you typical batteries, you they charge and discharge at the same rate. But here we'd like to charge perhaps during the solar day in six or eight hours and deliver for 24 hours continuous. If you can charge in about four hours, we find that's even more valuable. The periods of curtailment and the periods of zero and negative electricity prices in electricity grids are short. Mm. So the ideal thermal storage can charge very rapidly. You can control its charging, like other batteries, it could participate in providing grid services and it can run continuously, shut it down once a year for inspection. And when the factory that it's connected to is shut down and just sit there and require low uh, O&M uh, operating and maintenance costs.
0: Yeah. And I presume low losses, too.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: But let me I, w- I want to pause and yeah. just emphasize that the first point you made just so people get it we have these wind and solar all come online at the same time because they're all (laughs) using the same wind and sun. So what you have are these periods of oversupply. I think people are familiar with this. You get oversupply more than the grid can use. And today that just goes to waste. It's curtailed that energy is not used. And so what you're doing is proposing to come along and use it. But if that's your economic sweet spot, those couple of hours of curtailed energy, you need your battery to charge As much as possible during those couple of hours. In other words, charge really quickly because the amount of energy available in those curtailed hours, especially in coming years, is going to be potentially huge, right? So you need to stuff a lot of energy in your heat battery really quickly.
1: That's right. Now, the early deployments of heat batteries will use what is curtailed today. One of the things that we see that's uniquely pretty cool about this class of electric thermal storage is the total amount of energy that industrial heat needs is really large. For scale, I think we had a 52 gigawatt system peak in California not long ago. We've got about 20 gigawatts of PV in the state. Just repowering the boilers and furnaces that we have right now in California needs 100 gigawatts of new generation to replace Uh. those fuel BTUs. About 40 of those gigawatts can actually be built without any connection to an electricity grid. One of the things that's great about ETES powering industry is we're headed for a world where industrial electrification is not creating more problems for the grid. But we'll get there. But this matter of fast charging rate means that new generation projects that are serving the grid, the best ones, the cheapest ones, will be built selling part of their power to thermal storage, like during the peak and curtailed hours, Mm -hmm. and then delivering those broader shoulder renewable power to the electricity grid. And we're seeing again and again that that's a formula for low energy prices for the industrial and for lower prices to the grid. There's an interesting synergy.
0: Yeah, we're going to get into that synergy in just a second, but I want, to, I want to focus on how we're evaluating the heat battery. So we want it to absorb a bunch of energy quickly.
1: Fast charge. Yeah.
0: And then we want it to hold that energy with very little losses. And this is the other fact about thermal storage that blew my mind that I do not think is widely appreciated, which is the incredibly low losses here. Like people are accustomed to, I think, you know, like if you want to store energy in hydrogen, you're losing about 50% of your energy through all the conversions, like a 50% efficiency-ish. Yes. Batteries, lithium ion, you know, depending, you're getting up to 70s, 80s. I don't know what the standard average is. But just heating up a rock, (laughs) you get 90 to 95% of that heat back out of that rock. That is wild to me.
1: That's right. Yeah. The least efficient of the thermal energy storage systems are around 90%. We happen to be 98%. That's just crazy. So the heat just
0: sits there in the rock and doesn't go anywhere.
1: Well, fill up your thermos with hot coffee, take the thermos and wrap it in a couple of blankets. Open it up (laughs) three days later, the coffee is still hot, right? Right. It's not like a chemical system where there's self-discharge or something. The only place energy can go is either lost to the environment through insulation or delivered to the target. So it's a lot easier than it sounds. A lot of people think, oh, this efficiency (laughs) couldn't be possibly the case. It really is almost embarrassingly simple. (laughs) And now my question,
0: though, is when we say 95, 98%, what are the time horizons of that? Like if I fully charge your thermal battery, and we're going to get into the guts of your thermal battery here in a second, but if I fully charge a Rondo battery mm-hmm. and then just don't do anything to it, how long would it take for all that heat to be lost? Like what is the time horizons we're discussing here?
1: Again, the the use case that we're considering, that we're targeting, is it's discharging continuously.
0: Right. It doesn't need to hold it that long. I'm just like, theoretically, I'm wondering.
1: Theoretically, that's right. Because the one place where you are holding energy, we've got a food factory that runs shift work. They operate one shift five days a week. So yeah, you're storing some energy and you got more energy on Monday than you did on Friday afternoon. The short answer is we lose about 2%, 2 2.5% per day. So if you were holding energy multiple days, there would be self-discharge, but that's because we were designing for a particular use case. Mm. Again, you could decide the rate at which your thermos loses heat by, you know, if you wrap it in a blank, you could make it store energy for months on end. <laughs> then the question is, is that valuable? If you really want to store energy for months on end, if you want to move energy from July to January... Chemical storage is a great thing because it doesn't have self discharge. Right. If you are in a place where you can have a salt cavern and you can make hydrogen in July and pull it out in January, okay, that's great. Right. Because
0: the hydrogen you pull out in, in January contains the exact same amount of energy exactly. as that's you put right. in the hydrogen. As long as it didn't leak out. Right. The, right. <laughs> but yes. So in the hours to days, maybe multiple days, rarely a week time horizon that you're working in, you're getting 98% efficiency. 98% of the energy that goes in comes back out to the
1: application. Yes. In that use case, that's right.
0: I think now that we're uh, focused in here on the heat battery, let's just discuss what the Rondo heat battery is. And maybe while you're telling us, tell us what some of the other options in this space are. I know people are heating up, you're heating up bricks. Some people are heating up giant chunks of graphite. I think sand is on the, on the table. I don't that's even right. know what all the options are, but like what, what are yeah. people trying in that space?
1: The one technology that's been at scale for quite a while that's been used by the solar industry since the 1980s is using nitrate salts, which melt at around 250 right. degrees. salts. That's right. They're stable up to about 600 C. And so you can have a big tank of cold salt which is something like 600 degrees Fahrenheit. It looks like a transparent liquid, but uh, stay away from it. Uh, and a tank of hot salt. And you heat by pumping from one to the other and pull the heat out going the other way. I built my first molten salt test facility back in 2008 at a national lab.
0: I remember there was a hype cycle around <laughs> molten salts yep. that has kind of faded. Why, uh, why has it faded? Like, why, why are rocks preferable?
1: The more you know about it, the less you like it. It's it's one thing to use it in a solar power station where there's nothing in there for a mile away except for the turbine. It's quite another thing for an energy storage facility to be put inside a factory where people are working. When I mentioned safety first, you don't want a system that can catch fire or spill a superheated liquid that would burn (laughs) everybody or release toxic gases. I'm not aware of any molten salt projects that haven't sent at least one person to the hospital. Uh So there's the molten salt systems. And again, they work, they're proven, but they have proven challenges. They just require a lot of engineering to contain. Well, and that's another matter that you've talked about previously, which technologies get cheap. Right. Uh, Molten salt systems are a lot like they have the nuclear reactor characteristic that everyone is bespoke. Mm. Those tanks at that site with that engineering. And there has not been much learning capable to drive cost out. The modular approach, the factory manufactured approach eludes that technology. Now, there are a lot of people exploring how do we do modular factory management, And one of the things that you first do if you want to store heat is, okay, what's it cheap to store heat in? And as you mentioned, stone, crushed rock, various kinds of rocks in a box or <laughs> yeah. sand in a cylinder where you build an industrial strength hairdryer. You blow superheated air through the rock or the sand bed. And then when you want heat, you push cool air the other way through the sand or the rock bed. That works. There are people taking it to scale. It has temperature and cost challenges. What you find in every one of these cases, the rock is cheap, but the box costs a lot.
0: And the fans,
1: I assume, like the fans and that kind of engineering adds to the. That's right. And remember now that your fan has to blow at your peak charging rate. And there's an example of a technology that leads you to it's more expensive to charge fast. But the big problem with those unstructured materials is when they heat up, they expand and you have to have a container strong enough. And then when they cool, they shrink and settle. And then the next day they expand again and they slowly turn into dust over at a a rate (laughs) So the material looks really cheap, but the system turns out to be not so cheap. Right. Then you mentioned there are a lot of interesting science experiments with new materials that have never been used this way before. Uh, When we started Rondo, we did a really careful look at everything that's out there. There are people using liquid silicon. It melts at 14 Celsius Uh, stores a lot of heat, just like ice melting in a glass absorbs a lot of heat. Melting and releasing silicon, freezing silicon is a really good thing for high temperature heat. But (laughs) what do you make the glass that's holding that silicon ice? (laughs) How do you keep it? Like there are a lot of challenges that companies have been working on for years. And it's probably going to take another decade before that technology is at the point that an ordinary project finance guy will say, yep, that's as low risk as PV. I'll invest in that at the same finance rate. And that time-to-bankability is one of the biggest issues. If you want a technology to go big fast, everybody's got to agree it's boring and low risk. <laughs> and that's a challenge with new materials. Graphite is another material that's interesting. It has higher heat capacity than rock or brick especially when it gets hot, but it catches fire at 560 degrees C. So you want to store energy at a 1500 or 2000, you've got to keep it in some atmosphere so that it can't catch fire for 30 years. And it's conductive electrically, which could be great, but it's... Anyway, there are interesting engineering challenges and there are at least four companies working on that. One of them is also looking at using that graphite not for electricity to heat, but electricity to heat to electricity using PV cells to capture the light from the graphite. Is that Andora? Antora, yeah,
0: Antora, yeah. I talked yeah. to them too. And in terms of like science fiction, geeky fun, that one is just a great one. Like they like they heat the graphite up. It gets so hot that the energy comes back out as light. Light. So they have it covered in shutters that they can open incrementally. And the light can either shine on tubes full of fluid if you want heat or these special PV modules that they built especially for it if you want electricity. Like the whole – conceptually, that's very –
1: Satisfying. <laughs> it's super cool. Uh, my first job was in Fusion Power, where we, you know, you have a reactor that it wants a hundred million degree plasma right next to a superconducting magnet that has to be five degrees. The Antora PV challenge when they solve that, that technology is cool for electricity to electricity because it could turn out to be long duration, no moving parts storage. It's hard for us to see that. That's an example of. We're going to do something deeply innovative. How long will it take to prove that it's bankable? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we're doing is much more boring. The back to electricity <laughs> is their super – their superpower is back to electricity. Yeah, I
0: want to discuss that, like wh- wh- the, the ability to go back to electricity and what you've we'll come is there. Yeah. We'll get to that. But you guys yeah. have settled on, rather than any of these, you know, materials, science, fun time experiments, bricks. Yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> how much? How, uh, somebody told me this the other day. How, much, how many gigawatts of batteries are there in the world right now? Do you know? I don't somebody know. Somebody told me there are about three gigawatts of batteries in the world right now. Lithium ion batteries, you mean? Yeah. So, how much heat storage is in, running in the world right now as we speak? There's about 30 gigawatts of heat storage running right now. In 1828 was the first patent for a thing called a cowper stove, which is a tower with a thousand tons of brick in it that has air passages that on a one hour cycle, the still combusting exhaust of the blast furnace is blown down through that tower and heats Mm -hmm. all the brick to about 1500 C. And then... For about twenty minutes, fresh air is drawn up through the tower, and it's providing this the inlet air to the furnace, and it's delivering one hundred and fifteen megawatts of heat for about twenty minutes. Crazy, and then it's heated again. For so it's so, these things are heated and cooled twenty four times a day. They last thirty years. There's a million tons of that brick in service right now at the blast furnaces around the world,
0: and these are just ordinary. Brick bricks that people are familiar with, like what are
1: bricks made of? So (laughs) what what are they? the, The term they use, yeah, there are a bunch of different materials, but two of the most abundant elements in Earth's crust are silicon and aluminum. Silica, silicon dioxide, alumina, aluminum oxide, are. Two of the most important minerals, different bricks are made of different mixtures of silica and alumina. Mm -hmm. And it's there are other kinds of bricks as well that are even higher temperature, but alumino, they call it alumino silicate brick. It's higher temperature brick than in your fireplace looks a lot like it. And it's what is in every If you have a ceramics kiln, that's what's in your ceramics kiln liner. If you, you know, it's in a cement kiln and it's again used in all kinds of areas. It's people have been making brick like this for thousands of years. Brick is made from dirt. I mean, certain kinds of dirt, Mm -hmm. you mix it up, you put a little binder, you throw it in a kiln, and you've got your brick.
0: So if I'm looking inside a Rondo box, am I literally just looking at a stack of bricks? Pretty much.
1: The one thing that's different, our breakthrough. So the brick, as you know about brick, it's brittle. If you drop a brick, it'll break. Right. You also know that brick is not a good heat conductor. That's why we make fireplaces out of it. So if we want to heat it fast, we have to heat it uniformly. If you stuck a brick and you had like One side in a bucket of water and the other side in a fire, the brick might fracture. Hmm. But if you put the brick in the middle of the fire, it'll heat up rapidly to the temperature of the fire. You know, it's one of those ideas that once you see it, it's obvious, but it only took 80 design revisions. (laughs) (laughs) If you look inside a Rondo unit, what you'll see is a brick stack that's full of these open chambers. It's a checkerboard of open boxes surrounded by brick and bricks surrounded by these open boxes. And electrical heaters are embedded directly in the stack and they provide radiant heat within those open boxes. And because... Thermal radiation of every object in the universe goes as the fourth power of its temperature in (laughs) degrees Kelvin, as I know you remember. (laughs) Of course. Uh, Things that can see each other get to become the same temperature by exchanging heat. So the result of this was we found a way to directly, rapidly heat the brick.
0: And this is an alternative to blowing hot air over the bricks, that's right. which, which A, would require more engineering and more money, but B, also might not heat them uniformly, like might heat one side before the other side or something like that.
1: Hot air, you can heat them uniformly, like the blast furnaces do that. But in that case, you have the same electrical heater that's in something like a hairdryer. And inside a hairdryer, the heaters are mostly radiating to the metal plates, which in turn are heating the air, Mm -hmm. which in turn would, in this case, heat the brick, there'd be a couple of hundred degrees difference between the final temperature of the brick and the temperature of the wire. In our case, that's about five degrees.
0: Ah, so instead of using the wire to heat the air to heat the brick, you're just sticking the wire in the brick
1: and the wire is heating the brick directly. That's right. So we just, last week, we announced the world's highest temperature thermal energy storage system running. That's not because we use different heating materials than others it's because of that physics insight that led to that structure that's right
0: ah got it okay just quickly like what's what are some of the engineering challenges here like do the bricks expand and contract when they are are heated do they degrade over time what what sort of things are you dealing with here with bricks that you had to overcome
1: yeah there were lots of things because What we're talking about is kind of, at some level, obvious, and people have done really good work on this previously. But the challenge is you have to think about, yes, the bricks expand and contract, so build your structure. But the nice thing is they're freestanding. They don't need a container to hold them in. So if you build your structure properly, it can freely expand and contract.
0: Uh, So there are like spaces, spaces between the bricks in which they can...
1: Where they're touching when they're hot and spaces open up when it's cold. Exactly. Other big challenges, consider if you have a storage system and one area has some airflow blockage so that during discharge, it's not getting as cool as another area. The next day when you put heat in, it's going to wind up hotter than another area And the day after that, even hotter, thermal runaway that would cause failure because one part was too hot. If you have that possibility, you have to run the whole thing cooler. So it turns out one of the hard problems, one of the hard engineering problems, is making sure that the temperature inside the material is uniform. And it's uniform not just when the unit is new, but when it's 30 years old.
0: Your promise here is that this Rondo battery has the same capacity and the same performance characteristics in 30 years that it does today. Is that the idea? Exactly right. Yeah. And no other battery, like there's no other battery
1: that can say that. I think that's true. But here there's a million tons of this material running in the world. And those guys have much higher mechanical force on it. They build 30 meter tall things. We build eight meter tall things. They heat and cool it 24 times a day. We heat and cool it once a day. Last 30 years for them, pretty clear it's going to last longer than that for us. Yeah.
0: And let me ask about getting the heat out to where it needs to go. Because, you know, as I have been reading about, I I did a thing on a company a, a while back that was using concentrating solar to superheat a fluid. And they could get to these levels of heat that are germane to, you know, concrete and whatever, the higher end, the higher temperature applications, but only at a particular spot, right? It's got to be right (laughs) where the sun is and where everything's coming together in that one spot. And then, of course, you face the challenge of how do i get that heat to where it needs to be without losing a bunch of the heat and this is you know this is sort of the obviously the other half of the thermal energy challenge and and there's sort of two challenges one is making it into steam right for all these lower temperature applications and then i don't know making it into what for the <laughs> for the steel or or kind of the super high energy i don't even know how you transfer that high version of heat so like what 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 are you using on the back end
1: yeah so the the Every combined cycle power station in the world has a jet engine that's generating electric power. Its exhaust is around 605 C. That exhaust is passed through a boiler, a heat recovery steam generator that drives a steam turbine that makes extra electric power. So the world knows how to build those boilers that run on about 600 C air. Got it. The Rondo storage is much hotter temperature than that. We mix down... And for the systems that are delivering steam, we work with leaders who build conventional boilers, and we've engineered the heat battery to include that boiler. So the basic heat battery models are exact drop-in replacements for particular models of industrial boilers. They're just about the same size. Stick us next to your existing one. Hook us up to the pipe. You're replacing a fossil fuel run
0: boiler... With a heat battery and a boiler
1: in the same space. Yeah, we think of the heat battery as from the substation to the steam flange in that case. So it is a like-for-like drop-in replacement. The less work the customer has to do, the better off we are.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask. I I mean, we might as well discuss this now because this is obviously one of the – this is something you run into with battery chemistries all the time, right? Which is just like there's so much – existing infrastructure that even if you have something clever and fancy and new that's super cheap if it requires all the facilities to update themselves you're just starting way 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 behind the eight ball so that's right so to what extent is the sort of rondo heat battery plug and play like in a low temperature steam application and like a steel plant like can you want can you wander into any of these and just switch out with no pause
1: All of the energy, so the the top four categories in the United States, the DOE just gave a talk recently, and the top four categories into descending order of industrial heat use are chemicals, food and beverage, paper products, that includes everything from toilet paper to, you know, cardboard, uh, then cement, and then steel, so for chemicals, about a third to 50% of all the heat is steam. For food and bev and paper products, it's all steam. And for cement and steel, it's, none of it is steam. So we are simultaneously, we're delivering drop-in boilers today and simultaneously with our investors and partners, building and developing the calciners, the ethylene crackers, the kilns to drive particular industrial processes. Because you made this point about the solar tower. Yeah, you have a spot that's 100 meters up in the air (laughs) where you can have your heat. But what we want the heat is in some process unit. And look, we have 200 years of designing industrial process units that are powered by fuel Which of those can we retrofit? Where will we need to design new things? We were given a grant by the Danish government. We have a project underway to design and pilot a true zero cement process, intermittent electricity to zero emission cement. Mm. Most of the work in that project is the design of a calciner that instead of internal combustion runs on superheated air or superheated CO2. So it doesn't all happen all at once, but it does all happen. But Mm -hmm. some of it will, the high temperature things will take more work to integrate, because industrial plants today were designed with magnificent engineering and heat balance and efficiency, burning fuel. And so As it happens, everything that runs on steam, easy drop in all the high temperature processes. We have work underway now and hope to have results over the next couple of years that use this same thermal storage platform. Mm
0: -hmm. But this first commercial battery that you've deployed now, which, by the way, was just last week, I think. What application is that or what temperature level is that?
1: Yeah, that's targeting steam, 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 and steam. The the particular installation is at a fuel producer and it's at a biofuel producer. You know, whether you're making renewable diesel from soybeans or animal fat or ethanol from corn, about half the total carbon intensity of that fuel is fossil fuel that was burned to produce that biofuel. And We can set that to zero. So Mm. we can produce biofuels that are about half the carbon intensity of what they are today. Interesting. Our customer is really a visionary that's going to zero because the other thing that's been talked about a lot with biofuels is combining carbon capture of the biogenic CO2 in those facilities as it happens using RONDO for the heat eliminates about half the total carbon intensity. Using carbon capture eliminates about the other half. And together you get about essentially a zero CI, zero carbon intensity fuel. That little unit we just started up is the pilot for deployment of a series of larger ones to do exactly that, to produce zero carbon biofuel.
0: Very interesting. So let's pull the lens back a little bit, maybe talk about business model is the idea long-term that if I'm a, say I'm a manufacturing facility and I'm, I'm making, I don't know what, baby food, is the idea that I buy a Rondo unit and install it in my factory? Or is the idea that Rondo comes in, sets things up and sells me heat as a service? In other words, am I buying the equipment or am I buying the heat or some of both?
1: Yeah. Over time, there are as many answers to that question as there are to how conventional gas turbines and steam turbines are sold, right? Sometimes people own their own co-generation plant. Sometimes they contract with someone else to provide them electricity or heat as a service. The renewable heat as a service business will develop the same way in the United States today. There's a huge community of developers who know how to shave a few pennies off solar and wind electrons, but have never really looked at these industrial facilities. In Europe, actually, there are already renewable developers who are out there originating renewable industrial heat projects. So first of all, Rondo is offering on four continents, commissioned, guaranteed, installed heat batteries. That's the foundation we are also originating and financing heat as a service, principally in North America. Interesting. Because, again, whether you make baby food, as you said, or steel, you don't drill gas wells to get the fuel to run your process. <laughs> right. You buy energy as a service. Your capital dollars, most folks want to spend it on their own processes. Right. and. You know, this class, this thermal energy storage class is arguably creating one of the great business opportunities of our time for the development community, because we all know wind and solar deployment is slowing down, not because of reduced demand, but because of congestion. And the. I think the interconnection queue time in England is now 13 years.
0: Yes, there's like a there's like a terawatt now, I
1: think, waiting in the queues.
0: Right. Rondo
1: heat batteries, our basic unit, the RHB 300, needs 70 megawatts of generation. Typical installations may have two to 10 at a single site. These are utility scale energy demand, and they can be built with no grid connection.
0: Right. So the idea is you go build... A solar farm or a wind farm that is just attached to these batteries. That's right. And then you're selling the heat from the batteries. So at no point do you need the electricity grid. You're not That's waiting right. for the interconnection or anything else that these are a coupled unit. Wind and solar being so cheap is, you know, the implications are endless and often counterintuitive. Like when I hear you know, I could either buy heat from a conventional boiler or I could buy heat from someone who had to go out and build an entire in uh, utility scale <laughs> renewable energy installation and a couple of heat batteries. Like intuitively, that just sounds more expensive. But are wind and solar so cheap now that that's competitive?
1: Yes, absolutely. And it depends, right? Because <laughs> One of the things, so you just, that's exactly the right matter that you just raised. Someone is making an investment that's going to provide 40 years of energy to your facility. They're going to sell it to you on a contract. They're going to care about your credit worthiness and your willingness to sign that contract. That's one of the things that's unique here. It's different than selling electricity to a utility. On the other hand, from your standpoint, someone is saying, you can get off the fossil fuel price roller coaster. Not surprisingly, there are a lot of people in Europe who,
0: (laughs) you
1: know, and we've seen that in the U.S. Prices have been 14, they've been two, they're 10, they they're, and they are also in places that have carbon prices. You can have a permanent, this lack of volatility and exposure to regulatory matters also is a strategic advantage. A friend of mine said, why were all the factories in England built on the coast? It's because where it was cheap to bring the coal. Low-cost, reliable energy supplies are the foundation for industrial investment.
0: So you're free from fluctuations in fossil fuel prices, and you're free from any worry about escalating carbon prices or other carbon-related regulations. Yes. Basically, like two huge (laughs) worries. Because, you know, as you say, like for a lot of these facilities, the cost of energy is the bulk of the costs, and to have the bulk of your costs fluctuating five hundred x back and forth over the course of a couple of years is just an insane way to try
1: to run an industrial facility that's right the This matter of what kind of risks do we take? people say, right. oh it's risky to work with this new technology, but look at the risks that we just were used to taking, and we're entering this new world where we're not talking about a green premium. We're talking about the same or lower energy cost with these reduced risks. And then, of course, depending on what the commodity is, low-carbon aluminum trades at a price premium on the London Metals Exchange. Mm. Low-carbon fuels trade at much higher prices in California and Germany. And you know. And for consumer-facing brands, there are buyers' co-ops of producers who are seeking low cost, effective, renewable heat sources so they can offer to the market low carbon commodities.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like there ought to be a bunch of market actors that are just ready to embrace this. Like for one thing, as you say, just on a quantity basis, if you take all that energy that we're using for heat and transfer that to electricity, you need a lot of new electricity and a lot of new clean electricity. So it seems to me like renewable energy developers ought to be over the moon about this, like beating down your door. It's like, are they lining up to be proponents for the, for renewable heat and in, in, in the industry generally, or are they, have they not caught on
1: yet? In some places, the answer is yes. As I mentioned, Europe is very aggressively moving in this direction. And, a number of folks over the last few years have said, this Rondo thing sounds too good to be true. Come back to me when you're operating something commercial. We're now operating something commercial. <laughs> uh, so the short answer to your question is yes, because again, these projects offer this mix of speed and certainty that we're not tied up in a grid queue scale, utility scale, you know. There's a lot of commercial, industrial, CNI solar where people are building two megawatts here, two megawatts there. It takes the same amount of brain power and lawyer time to do the two megawatt project versus the 400 megawatt project mm. that the same facility would use for heat and returns. Now that we're in an era where that's the the coolest thing is that the numbers work for the heat user, they work for the financier, they work for the builders of the solar fields, and they work for us and That's a new world and economic tailwinds driving it. It will keep going faster and faster. The size you mentioned, I think at the end of 2021, there was about a thousand gigawatts of wind and a thousand gigawatts of solar each in the world. The IEA did an assessment of industrial heat and their number is it's about 9,000 gigawatts of new generation that's going to be required to replace the oil, coal, and natural gas now being burned. So <laughs> Good grief. That's worldwide, right? And so it's only, what is it, 20% of that in the U.S. Yeah, that's right. It's only a few thousand gigawatts in the U.S.
0: An enormous opportunity to build more renewable energy.
1: Yeah. A similar
0: question is, and, and I have always had this question about electric vehicles, too, which is... You know, electric utilities are sort of notoriously stressed, worried about this death spiral. They're worried about grid defection. And you represent potentially just a wild new load, a new responsibility for them. Something that natural gas utilities were doing, were handling, is now all going to transfer and be their responsibility, which is just a way for them to grow and invest and, you know, just a a wild new opportunity for them. Why aren't they at the front of the line, beating down the door, trying to make this happen faster?
1: That's a great question. And they are. One of our investors is Energy Impact Partners, whose backers are the North American electric power industry. And For sure, the lowest cost way that we're going to decarbonize all of civilization is electrification. And for sure, the electric industry is at the heart of that. One of the things that's really profound about what we're doing for them is that electrification, you know, you install an electric furnace. That furnace is now running on wind power 30% of the hours of the year and the other 70%. It's a new load on gas-fired or coal-fired power stations until the grid has fully decarbonized. Right. These thermal storage systems, these things can be dispatched by the utility the same way they dispatch generation. The deal is not that I want a megawatt continuously. The deal is I want 24 megawatt hours today. You deliver them when it's convenient. These things become an asset in the electricity grid And a solution to these problems of variability and overgeneration and balancing.
0: Right. In in the same way that sort of any controllable load helps grid stability. These are
1: controllable. Yeah, but people talk about controllable load. I mean, demand response, for example, is a load that you expect to run all the time, but you can turn it off during emergencies. That's not this. This is something that, no, no, you're going to dispatch it so that it never takes a single megawatt hour of spinning reserve or gas-fired power generation. You're going to dispatch it so that it never raises the peak demand on your transmission or distribution Mm. system. You can manage it with telemetry from the grid operator. It's different than anything that's come before. It's like lithium-ion batteries in that sense, but at a tiny fraction of the cost... And we're not trying to solve from moving electric power from noon to 7 p.m., right? We are taking that electric power and replacing gas combustion principally in North America and oil and coal combustion. We're opening an entirely new segment to renewable deployment. So, yeah, the electric utilities are getting engaged. Now, they face all kinds of issues with the regulatory frame that we have for electricity, of course they're already facing those matters as renewables deploy and there's some new challenges, but yeah there are people actively working that issue, and we're thrilled to be working with them
0: so if i'm you know I'm a, a, I've got this manufacturing facility, I've got a big rondo battery, and I'm trying to decide between two options one is I could build my own off grid behind the meter generation, you know, solar and wind, I could put my own solar and wind up, or I could just get on the grid and time my charging so that I'm chasing the clean energy on the grid so that I'm only charging when there's clean energy on the grid. Do we have any sense of which of those will be more economic or why you'd want to go one way rather than the other? I'm just wondering how many of these sort of self-contained, off-grid, purpose-built <laughs> renewable energy installations there are going to be, it seems to me like intuitively like that ought to be more expensive. And like what you ought to prefer is just for the grid itself to clean up so you have more, so it's easier. But like, what's the, what, are the,
1: what are the choices there? These questions are right at the heart of the matter. You're dead on. And I'll give you the long answer. The short answer is it depends. And it depends primarily on where you are. Pre-war economics, one project in Europe, a large operation that wanted to replace a 250-megawatt gas boiler, they could install a 250-megawatt electric boiler and eliminate their scope one. Their actual scope one plus scope two would go up because they're in an area that's about 40% wind. And now if 60% of the energy is coming from a coal plant, you're worse off. But from an economics standpoint, they were paying – $35 a megawatt hour for gas-fired heat. The electricity price annually would have been about 68 euros, sorry, per megawatt hour. But upon a study, given the presence of offshore wind in that area, their expected energy price on a long-term buying in the cheapest four hours a day was under 10 euros a megawatt hour. So that's an example where the grid connected thing is exactly right. And it will only take four years to get the grid upgrade done, of which about three months is construction. (laughs) So, in a lot of places, the grid connection for grid projects is a matter. Oklahoma last year had 2000 hours of negative wholesale prices. If you put a project that, you know, in Kansas or Oklahoma, you have Energy prices that are slightly negative on an annual basis, if you can charge very rapidly, if you are allowed to participate in the wholesale market, there are regulatory obstacles.
0: But in theory, in Oklahoma, during a time of negative wholesale prices, your facility <laughs> that's, that's running off a Rondo heat battery could be paid to charge itself. That's Right. Is that how that works? Is that what negative prices means? That's, That's what so negative mi- prices means. That's so mind-blowing.
1: So, well, again, and we have lots more of that coming. I know you've spoken to folks about the IRA. The production tax credit coming to solar is going to broaden the areas of the country where we see intermittent negative prices. Because, of course, if I'm getting $20 a megawatt hour for tax credit – I'm perfectly happy to generate when prices are negative 19. Right. Yeah. So
0: that's just crazy.
1: Technologies like this that can absorb those periods are going to lift the price floor. They're going to benefit all the generators, especially the generators that can't turn off. And we're pretty excited. And but again, it's can we connect to the grid? Can we capture those prices?
0: Because if you can, like there's enough heat to absorb all the curtailed power in That's the right. U.S. times a gazillion, like, you know, like theoretically, if you could hook up all heat right. to electricity, you would never curtail again, or at least not for decades, probably.
1: Of course, subject to where is the heat load versus where is the curtailment. Some curtailment is regional associated with total generation. You know, some of it is transmission constrained. So, but to a first approximation of the answer, yeah, that was correct. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that, uh, again, seems just a a crazy business opportunity for everyone involved.
1: Yeah, we agree. (laughs) But you do do expect to
0: see um, these off-grid, custom-built, renewable energy installations, purely powering heat batteries in areas, say, where the grid is congested or the grid is dirty or the interconnection
1: queue is unusually long. You do expect to see those pop up. Well, as I mentioned earlier, and just for scale, California has on the order of 20 gigawatts today. We need 100 gigawatts of new PV just to replace the BTUs of fuel now being burned for industrial heat. About 40 of those gigawatts, because of where the things are sited, could be built with no grid connection at all. And, you know, most of them will need some kind of grid connection. We see again and again that the new renewable project development model is going to be building a project that part of its electricity goes to industrial heat into a heat battery and part of it goes to the grid and that that's the sweet spot right. that delivers lower cost electricity to the grid and we're absorbing what would have been curtailed power from that new purpose built thing to get all the power we need for the factory or the cement kiln or
0: whatever right 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 yeah if i'm a renewable developer and i catch wind that there's this whole category of renewable projects that don't require this unholy paperwork nightmare that they all go through now again like i just can't imagine that they're not going to be stampeding in this direction i mean
1: i hear them complain about this constantly so <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know uh, what are the what are the required conditions obviously the financial community, we have to get our minds around, okay, how are we structuring these projects where most of the energy is going to a single factory rather than to the utility? Let me think about the credit worthiness of that. And then for the moment, how long will it take to retire the the Rondo technology risk? How do we backstop that? And we're busy building systems and uh, projects that this first one, of course, is the first step at commercial scale to build the track record. But again, there's a reason why we chose these century proven materials specifically so that, you know, once you turn one of these things on and operate for six months, there's nothing left to prove. Right? We know it works and we <laughs> right. already know everything is durable. The brick heats up, the brick cools down. It's not, uh, again, it's so simple. And exact, but that exact material, there's a million tons of doing that around the world doing that right now in much more severe service. So, mm-hmm. but yes, it's simple. That's, that's right.
0: And I would imagine also that this space is going to see a lot more entrance Absolutely. and competition. Of course. Once, once it's kind of uncorked
1: and, and it becomes
0: clear what the opportunity is.
1: Look trillion dollar markets don't happen without lots of people trying to <laughs> enter them and right. nothing could be better right That's what we urgently need.
0: right. One of the question about industry about location matters you mentioned you know industry clustering along a coast where the coal's available as more and more of our industrial activity in general and civilization gets hooked up to cheap renewable energy, Do you see something like over the course of – I mean, I guess this will take years and decades, but do you imagine areas of intense renewable capacity like with lots of sun and lots of wind becoming new attractors to industry? Do you see global industry starting to migrate to renewable energy? Is it that much of a chunk of the cost of an industrial facility that it might
1: be worth – Someday, literally moving to it? Uh, The short answer to your question is, yes. Just look at what happened with the shale gas revolution in the U.S. Vast investments in petrochemical and other manufacturing immediately shifted to where, you know, huge employment growth shifted to where those where that low cost energy was. Mm -hmm. And you know there's a question of how fast these transitions happen you know vaslav smil likes to talk about oh it takes a really long time but there are lots of examples where that is not true just again when the rules changed and combined cycle gas fired power generation was allowed in the us we saw giant capital flows and giant rates of transformation now that took awareness it took enough experience that investors could say, oh, yeah, I'll build that gigaproject because I know it's going to work. It took awareness of the kind that you are building, uh, that these opportunities exist. But the long term, yes, absolutely. That's right.
0: That'll be such a interesting geopolitical, you know, like of all the forces in the last, you know, 50 years or whatever that have moved industry around the globe this will be just a completely new version of that. It's going to scramble all the, <laughs> all the previous uh, alliances.
1: Yeah, but there is one example that's even faster, which is not just the long term, but the right now. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke at the Munich Security Conference in a session with a number of industry CEOs and Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president. And President von der Leyen said, look, there are three wars underway. There's the ground war. There's the energy war. He thought he would bring us to our knees. And there's a clean energy war, mostly with China. And Mm. a huge challenge before us today is how do we get off gas? Mm -hmm. But we need to get off gas without deindustrializing. There have already been giant plant shutdowns and layoffs because of the unavailability of gas right now. And the forecast on availability of gas longer term, Europe's bullets in the energy war are clean electrons, Mm. domestically produced, stable, low-cost sources of energy. And again, we and all the other electric thermal storage technologies, because we save twice as much gas per kilowatt hour as hydrogen, we're an important part of speeding up that transition there and preserving an existing industrial base. I think the same thing is true in the US as well as carbon prices come into the world as you know as gas prices rise the competitiveness of US manufacturing on the world stage is going to be affected by how fast can we make this transition to renewables and You know, it doesn't happen all at once, but there are beyond the climate drivers, beyond the huge business response that we've just seen in the last five years to the climate drivers, the pledges and not just pledges, but action that we're seeing across all kinds of industrial producers. We are really at an amazing moment. I kind of wish we had gotten started with what we're doing here, at Rondo, five years ago, because... But five years ago, what we were doing looked (laughs) stupid, right? I mean, go back 10 – what we're doing, somebody could have figured out earlier. I
0: said it at the outset. I'll say it again. I say it over and over again. The wind and solar being as much cheaper now as they were five to 10 years ago is just like – it's not an incremental change. It's a phase change. It's a flip to a different – system. And it's and it's just all we're doing now is just like sort of one at a time here and there in different industries and in different places, kind of opening our eyes to like, oh, this a completely different landscape, like completely new opportunities. It's a different world now. Like it, it's going to take a while
1: just to absorb the implications of super cheap renewables. Yes. And the thing we know for sure is that every year, somehow those cost reductions will continue, right? We'll have some short-term <laughs> supply chain things, but somehow, I mean, I worked in the electronics industry for decades and everybody every year said, oh, Moore's law is over, it can't keep yeah, getting better." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they say it every year for wind and solar too, right? Yeah, exactly. And you look back over every five-year period, every year's forecast was wrong. It fell faster than that. Mm-hmm. It's reasonable to assume we're gonna to continue to be in that so that this era that we're entering It keeps getting better and better. Our storage technology and the other storage technologies will cost reduce as they come down, but the the storage technology is only 20% of the cost of the total project. The fact that the wind and solar are coming down so steeply, this cost advantage is going to continue to open for the people who have made this transition onto renewables.
0: It's really interesting watching people in industry try to sort of skate to where the puck is going to be, as they say, you know, sort of like, you know, start off on something that might not be economic when you first start developing it, but you're going to meet that cost curve, right, in five years, <laughs> and then your business model will become viable. It's a real tricky timing there. There's a lot of people trying to sort of
1: coordinate that dance just right. Yes, but my point is, we're already at that point where we're at break even or better we're not waiting five years. Right. That's one of the big difference of this class versus there are a lot of things that are just, as you said, we're investing now because we're hope it's going to be cheaper in the future. Right. We're already at that point. Right.
0: So a final question. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this, but maybe we can try to do it quick, which is just you've got these things that store electricity as heat fairly cheaply for a long time with very low losses. The applications you're overwhelmingly focused on are industrial because, as we've discussed, industrial heat is huge, difficult to decarbonize, giant market opportunity. But I'm just wondering, it seems like there are probably other uses that we could think of for, sure. for, for boxes of heat. No. Um, are you actively pursuing any or alternatively, like, do you see any out there over the horizon that you might get to eventually? What else could we do with heat batteries?
1: There are two big things we've been pulled into that if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I would have said, oh, that's going to happen much later. One of them is industrial cogeneration. PERPA back in the 1980s established special tariffs for cogens because it's the most thermodynamically efficient way of delivering electric power and heat. Repowering cogens with renewable heat makes them more efficient a unit that delivers industrial steam and and electric power, is 95% efficient. It's more efficient than any lithium-ion battery, although it's only delivering uh, about 20 or 25% of its energy as electricity, and the rest is heat. Almost every industrial cogen, the industrial, needs so much heat that that cogen is exporting power to the grid as a side effect of delivering all that steam. Mm-hmm. So renewable cogeneration or they also call it combined heat and power is an area that we see distributed generation 20 megawatts here, 50 there, 10 there that is decarbonizing small industries but providing baseload distributed High value generation to the grid. Briefly, what does that look like, though? What is a cogin? Because you know cogin, just for
0: listeners, maybe who aren't familiar, it's you're you're using a turbine to generate electricity, and you use the excess heat from the turbine. That's right. For whatever you need.
1: So, what does it look like in this case? Instead, you said it exactly right. Instead of throwing the heat away into a condenser, you are using that heat as medium pressure steam making tomato paste or paper or chemicals or any of the things. And so you have a facility that the heat battery or today a natural gas boiler makes high pressure steam, goes through a turbine, medium pressure steam goes to the factory and electricity comes out from the turbine. Exactly the same thing. Now you've got a heat battery making high pressure steam Ah. and driving combined heat and power. So- Really, it's 95 percent efficient electricity in to heat and electricity out and you are exporting back to the grid. So that's one. The other has been a surprise. Again, it's something I would have said we wouldn't be engaged in. I think just today there was an announcement that the latest EPA rule is going to cause another 15 gigawatts of coal retirements.
0: <laughs>
1: coal, coal-fired coal power stations, people think of as about 40% efficient. That's about right. But that's about an 85% efficient boiler times a 47% efficient turbine minus the loads associated with air pollution cleanup. Mm, right. All the filters and whatnot keep the turbine, knock down the boiler, make that a giant long duration electricity storage that's now in one of those places where there was negative prices. You have anchors for development. We have several projects where developers are looking at these conversions as enabling the construction of a huge renewables cluster, sometimes an offshore wind landing point or onshore wind development. And right there reusing one of those things.
0: So this would look like say a bunch of offshore wind turbines generate electricity. They generate excess. The excess is stored in a heat battery. And then that heat battery is used to run an existing turbine. That's right. Like like at a coal plant to produce power. It'll so it would just be a
1: dispatchable it would be like a like a peaker plant. However you want to use it. That's right. Whether right? <sighs> you want to use that to take Intermittent and now get to base load underneath the intermittent, but it's an electricity storage uh, approach that reuses all the infrastructure, including the turbine. It is lower efficiency than electrochemical batteries, it's far lower cost. Those are large projects. Uh, I'd say that's the other one that's a little longer term out. The cogeneration, though, the combined heat and power is more efficient than any other electricity storage technology, right? More efficient. Mm. So I think those things will happen first, and we'll see about both of them.
0: If I'm repowering a coal plant turbine, that electricity to heat to electricity conversion is lower efficiency than what I would get from electricity to lithium-ion battery to electricity
1: that's right. But the coal turbine provides other services like inertia that are needed to make the grid work. And, and it's already there. It's already there. It's already operating. There's the first of these conversions using molten salt that's underway right now in Chile. Interesting. AES announced a project recently that had been in development for a long time. We're very interested to see how fast that sector moves And all of our focus is on the industrial side, but as I said, we've been pulled into some of these projects.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. There's a lot of talk from a lot of different directions about repowering these turbines, these existing turbines that exist. I know
1: the geothermal
0: people are are big into that idea, but it just does make intuitive sense. Like you have all these quite sophisticated and expensive turbines built (laughs) all over the place. Why not just go take out boilers and use renewable heat? instead to power them and then sort of like open your eyes. You're like, oh, we're like, we're surrounded with turbines.
1: <laughs> yes. But this brings us back to one of the little laws of physics about temperature. The higher the temperature of heat, the more efficiently it can be converted to electricity. Those coal plants use burning coal. Geothermal systems make heat at lower temperatures. Yeah. They can't directly, because we're the highest Temperature storage, we're the only one today that can repower those coal plants at higher than their original efficiency. Is that r- no limit? Like No, it's, it's removing the losses from the boiler and removing the losses from the station load. So it basically, it's getting the net power efficiency much closer to the gross and leaving the gross unchanged. Interesting. Pardon me, we're diving in too deep. But there is interesting, (laughs) there's very interesting synergy with other lower temperature heat, with waste heat recapture and with geothermal heat, where some of our customers are showing us stuff where they're combining high temperature heat from storage and recapturing some lower temperature heat. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that develops.
0: In terms of innovation for Rondo itself, and I promise this really will be the last question. I'm just <laughs> wondering what what um, you know brick is simple, and the the whole system is simple, as we've been saying. That's part of the that's part of the delight of it. But I'm wondering where are opportunities for big innovation? Do you have materials science? Like, is it within reach to heat bricks up hotter than you've got them to get up to the full whatever 1500 C or whatever insane super hot? Like, what's the
1: innovation horizon for you? Well, the driver for us, first of all, is speed, speed, and speed to scale. <laughs> right. We're manufacturing in two locations now. Uh, a lot of our material science will be driven by qualifying other sources of materials. We've, you know, produced now on three continents little pilot scale things. So, one chunk of material science is about just getting this to million ton a year scale. You know, the company formal goals are 1% of world CO2 in a decade and 15% in 15 years. And there are no material blockers to doing that. It's okay. Did we execute properly? Did we find the finance and developer partners? But to your point, the pieces today, we're using the most expensive brick materials, the highest temperature, highest strength. There will be innovations in simply reducing cost by... The system is way over-designed for reliability as we gain right. experience. <laughs> right. All kinds of cost reductions come from that. But as I mentioned, you know, we have two international cement manufacturers today as investors. We have this project with some Danish universities and a cement plant builder. That we're working on high-temperature applications where most of the development is the process equipment that will need the heat and then we'll be taking this core technology and connecting it to those other things Mm. but you know speed scale cost and then temperature and serving these other industries are the priorities thank you so much for spending all this uh time with me as
0: you can tell i find this particular (laughs) this particular area (laughs) So interesting and fascinating, and it will be interesting to come back uh, and talk again maybe in two or three years. Who knows?
1: Thank you, Dave. It's a real privilege to speak with you. I'm just delighted. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.